Welcome to Friends in Fiction, five best-selling authors and the stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, Patty Callahan Henry, and Mary Alice Monroe are five longtime friends with more than 80 published books to their credit. In 2020, they created Friends in Fiction to provide author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing, and to highlight independent bookstores. These friends discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Friends in Fiction podcast. This is the podcast arm of our Friends in Fiction Live program every Wednesday night on Facebook. Tonight, we're brought to you by Mama Geraldine's traditional Southern snack foods. Everyone on Friends in Fiction loves the cheese straws. And on winter nights, the gourmet cookies are yummy with coffee while reading a good book. You can save 20% off your order with the coupon code FAB5, F-A-B-F-I-V-E. So snack on, y'all. Welcome to the Friends in Fiction podcast. This is the podcast arm of our Friends in Fiction live program every Wednesday night on Facebook. You can also catch the show live on our YouTube channel. I'm Mary Alice Monroe, and today we welcome New York Times bestselling author Marie Benedict to discuss her newest book, The Mystery of Mrs. Christie. And I'm Mary Kay Andrews. Marie Benedict is a lawyer with more than 10 years experience as a litigator, but she found her true calling unearthing the hidden historical stories of women like Clementine Churchill, Albert Einstein's wife, and the brilliant inventor and actress Hedy Lamarr. And this time, Marie returns with a thrilling reconstruction of one of the most notorious events in literary history, Agatha Christie's mysterious 11-day disappearance in 1926. You know, Mary Kay, I never knew about that. And I love Agatha Christie Mysteries. So like so many, I just dove right into the book. And I didn't really know about the disappearance either until years ago, I did a literary tour of England. And when we got to Torquay, we were told that that was where the whole thing started to unravel. And, you know, to this day, nobody knows what really happened because Agatha never discussed it in interviews. (laughs) That's right. Well, let's ask the woman who dove into the research and might know the answer. Welcome, Marie Benedict. Thank you both so much for having me on your show. I have been avidly following the blossoming of Friends in Fiction, and it has been such a delight. It's been such a solace and a balm for so many of us during this, you know, crazy challenging time. So I'm just grateful for you two and all five of you. Well, thank you. And honestly, it's been a solace for all of us. So it's been a real surprise and a joy. And we're so glad you're here now at long last, because we've we've met each other before many times. And we're so delighted. So congratulations. Can we just say huge congratulations on the success of The Mystery of Mrs. Christie? Yeah, you know, The Mystery of Mrs. Christie debuted on the New York Times bestseller list, and it's been featured on CBS Morning News and the Washington Post and a million other places we don't have time to talk about. <laughs> it's been great. Well, thank you. It's been a delightful surprise, as it always, you know, as these things always yeah. are. So I feel well, so fortunate. 
Why don't you give everyone a brief synopsis of the story? Ooh, wow. Where to begin? Let's begin on the night of December 3rd when Agatha disappeared. Although, of course, the story goes way back, you know, many years prior to that. But um, for most people, the story unfolds on December 3rd, 1926, when um, Agatha went missing. Her car was found running on the, 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 sort of the precipice of a steep hill that led to a deep a spring-fed lake called the Silent Pool, which had been the stuff of legend. You know, medieval maidens had drowned there, all sorts of stuff. Her belongings were found scattered around the car. The car was running when it was first found. Of course, it was empty. Um, people were, uh, the, the authorities, the press, the townspeople were in an uproar. They couldn't believe that this young mother, she was a, a young woman in her 30s at that time, not the Agatha Christie of legend, the wife of a World War I pilot hero. She had a young daughter, only seven. And of course, she was a mystery novelist on the rise. She had just published her sixth novel, which is one of her most famous even now, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, famous unreliable narrator story. And of course, she was missing in circumstances that seemed torn from the pages of one of her own novels. And so it really captured the attention of the media. Uh, It became like a media circus, which was really kind of uncommon for that time. And day after day, more and more volunteers assembled, more and more police By the end, there were thousands of people combing the fields, dredging the lakes, following up on rumors to try and find her. They enlisted the services of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Which Um, was great. Right? I I love, you know, all else fails. Let's bring in a fiction writer to try and solve (laughs) a really important mystery. Um, And then just as mysteriously and suddenly as she disappeared... On the 11th day, she mysteriously reappeared with no explanation. Um, She was found about 200 miles to the north in a hotel, and she claimed amnesia. And as you mentioned, Mary Kay, the uh, resolution of this mystery has never transpired. The authorities never came up with a firm uh, resolution, and she never, ever spoke of it again. And I felt like it was an invitation for fiction. Yes. Yeah. You know, what is there about this amazingly prolific golden age mystery writer? I mean, she had 86, 66 novels and 14 short story collections plus several plays. I think, uh, was it The Mousetrap for a long time? Was the longest running, continuously running play on the West End in England? What touched you, Marie? What made you decide, I've got to figure out the mystery of Mrs. Christie? Uh, You know, for me, it was really twofold, I think. You know, when I grew up, I was an Agatha Christie fan, right? I grew up starting her in middle school. I had this wonderful aunt growing up who was um, an English poet, an English professor of poet and a rebellious nun. And she loved to give me books. That was kind of her job. I was a voracious reader, still am. And I started on Agatha at a young age. So I always had her, her legacy, her books on my list. You know, I keep this crazy long list of historical women that I want to write about. You know, I'm kind of on a mission to excavate these women from the past and bring to light their stories and their legacies. And so, you know, what happens is I'll start one book and I'll kind of dip into another research and think, should I do that one next? And when I dipped into the research on Agatha Christie, It turns out she was so much more than the sort of iconic Agatha Christie that we think about. You know, we think about 
the silver haired quaffed matron and her tweeds and her tea, mm-hmm. penning these incredible stories. But we don't think about what she might have been like as a young woman. What gave rise to um, the, what was her upbringing that gave rise to this, this legacy, this talent? And then, of course, as I was in the research, I learned about the disappearance and I thought, oh my God, like, how could this, how could this unsolved mystery be at the core of the queen of the mis- of mystery's life. And I had this sense that kind of picking apart that mystery, solving it in my own way, of course, fiction, might give us some answers as to what, what actually happened and wh- how that helped build her into the iconic Agatha Christie. Now, was there something in the uh, Clementine Churchill book that you wrote that you picked up, picked up a thread of Agatha? Um, because the timelines cross each other, right? Definitely the research that I did on the Lady Clementine book really helped. I mean, you know, when I when I wrote that story, which was about Winston Churchill's wife, I had to like become completely immersed in history, world history, from an English perspective from pre-World War One all the way through and past World War II. So, I mean, if there was ever any education or research that was helpful for writing a book, it was that because I learned so much about the historical context of Agatha's life. And, you know, she was really, prior to World War One. she was really existing in this, this Edward, that wasn't, it was actually Victorian, but it was like this E.M. Forrester kind of idyllic Devon seaside country life very relaxed that was that was about to disappear between the world wars and um part of her always kind of longed for that life that was um that was gone mm. but um there was something about it that was just both that period and then the period between world war 1 and world war 2 that i had become so immersed in in my last book that i was able to kind of import into this one it was very very helpful in fact actually i was supposed to write the agatha christie book instead of the lady clementine book and you know how these things go at publishing houses. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's that's what happens. But it was helpful. <laughs> it was helpful. Well, I have to say the book was a real page turner. It was. And I think part of it was the way you constructed the novel. You have the 1912 one chapter. You had subsequent chapters. So 1912, you had the point of view of a young Agatha maturing Agatha. She meets Archie and moves forward. And the next chapter is 1926. And it starts with the day that Agatha Christie disappears. And that's all from the point of view of her husband, Archie. And you really definitely juxtapose both of those times until you bring Agatha in the past to the present. It was really brilliant. And I'm sure pretty difficult to pull off. Um, so it was a challenge. That's it for was. Sure. So can you talk to us about that? How you constructed that timeline, and how did you come up with the idea for it? Well, it's funny you should ask that because, in a way, I'm kind of glad that I didn't. You know how things get moved around in the publishing world, and I was supposed to write Agatha earlier. In many ways, I'm glad that I didn't because the idea for the structure kind of gestated over time. You know how when you start thinking about a book and then as it kind of, you ruminate over it, it really evolves. And that's really what happened with this story. And and part of that was really influenced by my rereading as part of the research that I was doing for it, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. Um, For people who haven't read it recently, it's a classic. It's really the quintessential unreliable narrator story. And so it explores the theme of one of the narrators of the story, the the, the storytellers, is is not credible 
that there's something that they're saying or doing, which is not trustworthy. And so, you know, part of my rereading of these books was really part of my research into Agatha herself. Mm -hmm. You know, I was reading her autobiography. I was doing other sorts of research. But, you know, as writers, we kind of all do a little bit of autobiography in our books, whether we do it consciously or subconsciously. And so I was kind of looking for bits and pieces of Agatha in her novels. And when I read that and I realized that that had been released a year prior, in the year prior to her disappearance, I couldn't shake the idea that this facet, this idea of of the unreliable narrator, that there's a mask we all wear and that we hide behind and that bits and pieces of the truth are going to be disseminated in different in a variety of ways, mm-hmm. that that is definitely part and parcel of what happened. And once I kind of examined the mastery of that story and the way she constructed her characters, I really started to believe, as we all do in our fictional worlds, that um, she couldn't have been a victim in her own vanishing. There had to have been some component of it, especially because it looked so much like one of her novels that that she had a hand in. And so I started to explore the idea of what that would look like. Eventually, because I am interested in all my books, it kind of excavated these women's origin stories. I didn't want to lose that. And so that became, for the first two-thirds of the book, the alternating chapter of Agatha's life. And in that way, in that sense, the book reads like a lot of my other books, but I wanted to draw the readers into that real-time drama of her disappearance, that mounting pressure, mounting anxiety. Um, and I could only do that from the perspective of her husband. And that gave me the other sort of opportunity to explore another facet of the unreliable narrator, which is that there are omissions in the truth telling. You know, an unreliable narrator Mm -hmm. can actively mislead or an unreliable narrator can, you know, lie through omission. And so I got to explore, without telling too much, I got to explore both of those sort of techniques in these alternating chapters until the two stories coalesce and we get to see Agatha in modern day or her modern day, 1926, and bring it all together. But Marie, how did you manage it? You must have had sticky notes all over the place. Uh, You should see my, (laughs) you guys only see like the clean part of my office, which is right here. I still have those sticky notes around. I'm trying to figure out how you kept all the details together. You know, I wrote them separately. I wrote Agatha's storyline, and then I wrote his storyline. And sometimes as I was writing her storyline, I would dip over to the, the last third when it all comes together. But the research was really quite different for each section. You know, for the 11 days of the disappearance, it had turned into such a media circus. There was this wealth of newspaper articles, firsthand accounts. And of course, Archie was his own worst enemy. He was providing Mm -hmm. me with all sorts of marvelous missteps and misdeeds to populate (laughs) those 11 days. I mean, he was a piece of work. He's kind of a cad. Oh, <laughs> let's be honest. Kind of. Trying to be polite. You're so sweet. I mean, he, you know, he basically started dumping her when her mother died. It was just the whole thing was just a whole, whole way around nice guy. All around good fella. Um, I like to think, you know, sometimes I was in his headspace for, you know, for a good third of the book and I had to find something that I could kind of relate to or have sympathy or compassion for. And I started to really think because he had transformed so much from before the war 
to after the war that maybe he had some kind of PTSD. You know, he he did. He was one of the very first pilots in the Royal Flying Corps, which was one of the first um, air forces ever formed. And of course, the planes were rudimentary. So many men perished. I couldn't help but think that maybe there was something in there. And I clung to that. As he continued down his path of misdeeds. <laughs> I tried to. Uh, you know, Marie, your previous historical novels, fiction novels, have focused on women who, despite their own achievements, somewhat lived in the shadows of the famous men in their lives. But that is not the case with Agatha. In fact, by, I think for me, by the end of The Mystery of Mrs. Christie, I really didn't care that much about Archie. I mean, I had sympathy for, for the fact that he... I think I drew the same conclusion you did, that he maybe was shell-shocked. But now does writing about a woman like Agatha, does that indicate an evolution in the lives of the women that you write about? Or is that an evolution of your own interests? Oh, I love that question. Probably both and neither. Is that a great answer? I'm sorry. But actually, in some ways, the fact that Agatha has is so famous and has this very well-known legacy almost deterred me from writing about her. You know, I feel um, very beholden to the women that I write about. And very often, the story that I'm telling about them is really their second and probably only chance to have their legacy known. And so I kind of shied away from Agatha for a while because of that. You know, I was more felt more like I should put my attention towards some women who were lesser known. But her story and the issues that she she was dealing with, I felt like were so modern. You know, that issue of an unreliable narrator is one that I think permeates modern life very profoundly. You know, especially when we talk about social media, we are curating our lives for an external viewpoint so much, you know, whether it's the way we look, the way our houses look, the way we're operating our lives. And this idea of crafting a mask and hiding or not even really being in touch with our authentic selves was really appealing to me. And I hope that readers kind of come away with the sense that in many ways, we are really un all unreliable narrators of our own lives and to kind of think about how important it is really to, con to, to strip away that exterior and lead the more authentic aspect. I mean, that's really what Agatha had to do in the end is kind of peel away um, the mask she thought she was supposed to be wearing to, to kind of have one that was a little bit more real and, and more true to her. And that's what really struck true for me while reading the book, that to me, the mystery of Mrs. Christie is as much a story about the evolution of the woman Agatha Christie, as it is an unfolding of her disappearance. Thank you and, for saying that. Oh, that's, exactly I, that's what always captures me. Yeah, I mean, to me, it was a dual storyline, actually, because you begin with Agatha. And as you said, it's this typical woman of her era where her goal was to be the perfect wife and her mother and her mother really enforced this. And she had a close relationship with her mother. You know, your goal is to be a wife and mother. And, and I love the expression to tend your husband. I mean, what a word, to tend him. Like there are plants. Opens up a whole lot of plants. <laughs> what does right? that mean, really? And, I, and honestly, first of all, really, Marie, I'm old enough to remember my mother telling me the same thing. Well, I don't know if anyone all, else. possible, but. Uh, no, but I, it's still a very conventional thought that don't shine your light too bright. I don't know if you, if anyone in your generation Oh, I, th I do think we get that message to a certain extent. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that it goes to the extent as it, as it 
occurred during Agatha's day. Um, and that is that, you know, um, ambition was actually a dirty word during her time period. I mean, women were not meant to have ambitions other than to foster husband and home. Um, but I do think that, you know, today women get the message that, yeah, ambition is great, but everything else has to be perfect still, right? And so in that way, it's not so dissimilar from the message that Agatha was getting from her mother, which is, oh, isn't it nice that he lets you write? Isn't that sweet? But of course, his dinner's still on the table and the house is still immaculate and the child is still tended to. You know, it's still that message that is a pretty modern message is you can have it all, but there's only one person who's making it all happen, right? It's not necessarily, a, I mean, I'm not saying this is true for everybody, but I see it. I see that issue um, at the forefront of a lot of conversations. And I think the pandemic in many ways really brought that home for people. The division of labor in a household became became an epidemic unto itself. You know, how people were going to navigate that, how careers were going to be bolstered or not. And a lot of women's careers kind of faded away or had to be opted out of because they couldn't do it all. So, you know, in that way, I think it's a very modern issue. It is. It's very, very timely. And I, I didn't realize it. To me, I love stories of this sort of phoenix rising from the ashes, which, and you were really clear about that. Was that something you knew at the beginning of the book that this was her evolution? You were going to show that this is a woman who could actually devise her own disappearance? No, I actually, I wasn't. I thought it was possible. I thought it was one potential outcome. You know, there are many, many theories about what ha- what if what possibly occurred. There've been movies made of it. There's other books on the topic, um, but to my sort of sense, I don't think anyone was really exploring it from the perspective that I am, which is her evolution as a woman, which is that deep dive into her her origin story, and and to really explore the crosshairs that she found herself in in the days and months and weeks leading up to her disappearance. Other sort of explorations have, have taken those 11 days and turned her into a detective and done all sorts of things with it, which is great. I, I, I think that's fantastic. That's just not kind of my mission. But once I got kind of into the research and into her headspace, and especially into her books, I just couldn't see it any other way. I felt like I knew the young Agatha. Of course, I always feel this way, at least my fictional Agatha. And I felt like I couldn't imagine her letting someone else do that to her. And and I don't think it was done for the reasons that have been speculated, that it was for um, the aggrandization of her of her own popularity, if it wasn't sp- specifically to malign her husband. I think she was in a situation, I mean, this is my personal opinion, I think she was in a, in a situation, like I said, in the crosshairs, and the only way she could get to the other side with her relationship with her daughter intact, with her reputation intact, was to picked this disappearance in a particular way. I think what she did not account for was the media circus. That was something that was almost unprecedented for that time. I mean, there were stories, multiple daily stories about her all across England, all across Europe, all across Australia, all across America. I mean, she had no, even if she did put this all together, there's no way she could have anticipated the kind of notoriety that that was going to gain her. And I think that changed her on the other side. And yet she was still able to kind of claim that authentic ring that she was, that she was going for. I love that in the novel, you t- talk about, um, they even consulted Dorothy L. Sayers 
you know, who was one of these other iconic mystery writers of the golden era of mystery. And, you know, I am not usually a defacer of books. I sort of hold books to be holy relics. But I'll tell you, when I got to that line where you talked about the unreliable narrator, you wrote, and I, I underlined it, we are all unreliable narrators of our own lives, crafting stories about ourselves that omit unsavory truths and highlight our invented identities. It really stuck a chord with me. And I sort of saw the through line from Agatha and the murder of Roger Ackroyd all the way through to, you know, there's been this huge spate of thrillers, mysteries featuring unreliable female characters. I think specifically about the girl, the woman on the girl on the train, girl on the train. Yep. Girl on the train, the woman in the window, all this huge batch of recent best-selling thrillers. And they sort of turn the page back to the unreliable narrator and what you can do with one as a, as a fictional device. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I, and I'm so happy that that line that you highlighted, that is really the core of the book for me, you know, and it, it can be read on so many levels, you know, whether you're talking specifically about the device itself, whether you're talking about Archie and the way he turns, you know, a blind eye to the truth, whether you're talking about Agatha, the, the created Agatha that, without saying too much, the created Agatha, or you're talking about Agatha as she had been forcing herself to live before she claimed her own identity. And I think whether, no matter what sort of lens you put on that phrase or on that concept, I think it's one that has a lot of really important bearing for us today. And I think that bears out, you're right, with there are a lot of thrillers that take that concept. You know, it kind of takes that, especially, I think, was it Girl on the Train, that idea of gaslighting, which of course is really unreliable narrator stuff and takes it to the next level, you know, till you don't know what to believe about yourself until you're so turned around and what the truth is about who you are and what you've done. And there's a little bit of that in here. There's a little bit of Agatha starting to believe what Archie tells her and starting to internalize that as part of her own identity. And I think for us to separate that out, and as we analyze ourselves and analyze our decisions and our actions is so important. You know, it's funny when in writing these books, you know, because I'm always picking women who have, you know, an important legacy and are dealing with timely issues. I that just that little distance of history sometimes gives women enough space to, to extrapolate that issue and bring it into their own lives. Um, I see it a lot with women because I write a lot about women in science. I've, you know, do a talk and all these women will come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I never really realized that 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 was marginalization or that was, but to see it thrown in bold relief in the pages of the past really is instructive without being instructive. And, you know, I hope in some ways that people enjoy the read. They see Agatha Christie in a totally new way. I mean, I think she's a total hero. I know I Um, did. Oh, good. Because, you know, she's so <laughs> sure. different. She's not really. that old woman in the tree that you talked she's about. She's not. She's not. And it took her, She. it was a lot of work for her to get to that side. You know, that that creation of herself, the sacrifices she made to create the legend, the icon, were enormous. You know, it's interesting. This is just an aside, but I actually wrote a novella that comes out February 11th with um, Kate Quinn about Agatha on the other side. 
there was a cross section of our two research. Kate's writing about Bletchley Park and she came across Agatha in the 1940s. It's a long story, which I won't get into, but you get, I got to dig deep into what Agatha was like on the other side of the disappearance. And again, I don't think at all the, that image that she, that we all have of her is anything close to what she was really <laughs> like. I mean, and I think that really on the interior, because I think even her family, she changed after this event, very reserved, careful. You know, I think having been exposed to kind of the infamy that she was to that, that close scrutiny of the journalist lens was a lot for her. I don't think that she ever anticipated that. So it's really been so interesting to see her, the arc of her life. Well, one quick question, since you brought up the, um, you're working on a, a novella, what novel are, are we looking forward to? Oh, well, in June, I have a new book coming out. It's called The Personal Librarian. It's such, it's such a transformative writing experience for me going into this story. It's the tale of, you know, J.P. Morgan, the famous financier and industrialist from the early, late 1800s, early 1900s. Towards the latter years of his life, he became a really prolific collector, in particular of rare manuscripts and books. And he created uh, an institution in New York City called the Morgan Library. It was his private library to house his magnificent collection, and he hired a woman to run it. Her name was Belle DaCosta Green, and during the course of her life, she became really one of the most powerful people in the art world. She was certainly, I would say, the most successful woman, career woman of her time. I mean, she ran that institution for four decades. Um, but the only way she was able to have that success and have that role is by hiding her identity. She was actually African-American. She was fair enough to pass as white, but she had been raised in a legacy of equality. Her father was the first African-American graduate of Harvard. He was the dean of Howard Law School, and he fought alongside Booker T. Washington and Frederick Douglass, for the Civil Rights Act of 1875, which, if it hadn't been overturned, would have had equality right after the Reconstruction period. We wouldn't ever have had segregation in the Jim Crow laws, but that failed. And so um, Belle DaCosta Green had to sacrifice her identity in order to live as a successful woman in the world. So it explores this fascinating, unbelievable life. I mean, the people, she, I mean, John D. Rockefeller taught her how to drive. I mean, that's just like one <laughs> little tiny nugget. Her life was unbelievable, but such a really, I think, important look at this time in our, in our country's history. I wrote it with the wonderful author, Victoria Christopher Murray, a successful, she has uh, two of her books are going to be lifetime movies that come out in April. She's a, just a force unto herself. And it was just a really important experience in my life as a person to write this book. What a, And what a timely time for it to come out, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, what is the Martin Luther King quote, uh, the arc of history bends slowly towards, towards justice? I think I maybe messed it up. I love that quote. I don't know that one. Well, um, I might have made up part of it. Well, it felt <laughs> but good. It we'll fits take beautifully. It. It, it works. <laughs> you know, what's interesting for us as we were writing this, um, we were in our deep editorial phase during the explosion of the Black Lives Matter movement and the parallels between what happened in the post-Reconstruction era and our own time were so plain for us. And it was so important it was so painful, I think, for both of us to be writing about issues of race while we were watching this unfold. And for Victoria, who's an African-American woman, to share her experiences with race, both, you know, 
generational and individual. It, it really informed the book and it really changed me. I mean, to be able to look at that time period and really what's happened since through Victoria's eyes is a gift that I could have never imagined. Okay. We have, I have just one more question for you, Marie. And as a mystery reader and writer, I just want to know, you know, Agatha created two of the most memorable fictional sleuths in contemporary fiction. Are you team Hercule or team Jane Marple? That's so hard um, because I love them both. I mean, I feel like they were my friends growing up and they still are today. And because when I read books now, I, or her book, reread her books now, I'm looking for Agatha and Agatha is part Miss Marple and part Hercule Poirot. She embodies both. So I think to pick one or the other would be to say like, I like that part of Agatha and not that part, but probably the books that I prefer (laughs) are probably the Hercule Poirots. I mean, because, I mean, I love the Miss Marples, but my two ultimate favorites are probably two of everybody's favorites, which are Death on the Nile and the, um, the Orient Express, Murder on the Orient Express. And those are Hercule Poirot's, but he is annoying. And, you know, I know why she killed him off. <laughs> That's, what makes, That's why we like him. him in the end. And in some ways, the more reticent, but the, the quiet, sharp observer, that was very much Agatha later in her life. Yeah, the joie de vivre in, in everybody's business was Agatha in her younger years. You know, so well, we're going to have to let people decide and let us know. Are you Team Hercule Poirot or Jane Marple? Are you guys? I'm definitely Hercule Poirot, and I'm um, Jane Marple. I, <laughs> there you are. <laughs> but you know, I grew up in in St. Petersburg, Florida, and so the idea of a vicarage and all the quaint um, and train schedules, all of that was fascinating to me. So, and it was so outside of my world. So um, when I met Jane Marple, I met, I met somebody um, that I had no expectation to, to learn about. And, and I think part of what people love about her books is that puzzle, but it's also the character and the worlds that come with it. You know, it's it's an invitation. Agatha Christie's synonymous, not just but with with mystery, but with those those perfectly ordered worlds that she created. I know she's a, fabulous, and we thank you so much for joining thank us and talking guys. about the mystery of Mrs. Christie. You really give us a view of this wonderful renowned author that I don't think most of us have ever seen before. So we hope you'll return again. And thank you for joining Mary Kay and I. And today we've discussed the mystery of Mrs. Christie with author Marie Benedict. And we hope you'll join us for our podcast where we offer weekly Friends in Fiction live Facebook shows and also additional fascinating interviews about the world of books. Happy reading, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And please, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Good night. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.